February 2020, and uh, welcome to episode 39 of Run Chat Live. Um, wow, I have been stoked. So as, as soon as this guest actually said that he was going to come to the show, I've been thinking of very little else. I'm so excited to bring you shortly, um, Alex Hutchinson. Um, just been chatting briefly before coming on air and and I just realized I've got so many questions to ask him based on I'm gonna have to stick to the book I mean I'd had enough I'd have an hour on just the previous books he's written and everything but we're gonna stick principally to the endure uh his I say latest it's been out for over a year now a couple of years so we're gonna talk about that and I can't wait for you to join me uh don't forget if you are watching this live and you join us then feel free to uh ask some questions um Alex is going to be coming to London, which is very exciting for Tom Goom's uh, running conference. But we were just saying he hasn't been here for about seven or eight years. So, um, yeah, we're going to talk about that later on. Before I get too excited and bring Alex up, I must say uh, thank you to our sponsors, the Brighton Beard Company, .co.uk. Um, they sponsor the show. And um, if you are, well, Valentine's Day, we haven't got time now. Maybe you have. If you're thinking of getting a late Valentine's present for your fella, um, then uh, Brighton Beer Company, uh, my number one source for beard balms and moustache balms and oils and brushes and bags. Um, fantastic um, produce, great sense um, and uh, great service as well. So do go to www.brightonbeercompany.co.uk. And if you use uh, the code RCL15, then you'll get yourself a nice 15% off. Um, can't recommend them enough. So, guest today, Alex Hutchinson. Again, I kind of presume that people know this guy, but I've done a little bit of research and asked people, especially runners. No, they don't know. And it's incredible because even if you think you don't know him, then uh, you've probably read his work. If you've read Runner's World, um, if you've read Outside Magazine, The Globe and Mail, um, you've probably even heard people quoting his ideas. Um, the book, Which Comes First, Cardio Weights, that was back in 2011. Um, and that was, or still is for me, just a Bible um, for um, busting some of the myths, which is what we love doing on Run Chat Live, putting some evidence back into um, running performance um, and injury. So, and that was written back in 2011. So I've been following Alex for a long, long time now, and I'm absolutely pumped to be able to bring him to you here today. Um, today, we are going to focus, though, on his book, um, endure mind body and the curiously elastic limits of human performance which quite rightfully so has been a new york times bestseller um, and it's particularly poignant because it covers um the breaking two which um alex was there watching that and it's fascinating hearing how alex's views and things changed during that time and of course now we've got the um we know that Kipchoge actually managed to do it. So it's a fantastic a bit chance for us to look back now at that experience with what we know now with shoes and everything like that. So there we go. A uh, very um, exciting hour it's going to be. Uh, remember, if you are watching us live, then do feel free to say hi and join us. Um, and if you're watching the uh, recording, then you can still leave comments and leave questions and we will get back to you. But without further ado, I shall now bring up to you, Doctor, which you have to give these words, um, Dr. Alex Hutchinson. Hello, Matt. There we you? go. Hey, how you doing, Alex? Thank you so much. I saw you laughing when I called you doctor. You're not used to that. <laughs> that uh, yeah. Well, I, I I never want to pretend that I have a doctorate in any area that's at all relevant to anything I talk about now. So I I tend to tend to leave it aside. But it's I heard it was a doctor in physiology. Is it not? 
No, it's a it's a doctorate <laughs> in physics. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, was clever I in, in making one sound like the other, but uh, yeah, no. It, on my on that t- 2011 book you mentioned, they 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 put Doctor Alex Hutchinson on the cover, and at the time I was like, well, okay, I'll go with it, whatever helps. But now I'm a little more like, nah, let's not uh, let's not use the doctor when it's not called for. I know. I mean, and you are continuing a fantastic line of guests. Who the main object or the main reason for me picking guests is modesty about everything and i love to put people on the spot like that because you are a fantastically modest fellow for everything you've achieved so far and before we even get started i just want to say thank you for everything you've done for the world of endurance sports the fantastic journalist the books like i said is a bible the cardio which comes first is fantastic so thank you I, I appreciate the very kind wow. words, and I, and I will say, if it gets me a better table in a restaurant, I will use doctor. But uh, <laughs> other than that, <laughs> no. But seriously, thank thank you. I appreciate the kind words. Um, I just say a quickly hello to Claire Minshall, um, and uh, Toby Blanford. Claire is in the house as well, and you'll be seeing a bit of Claire, won't you? Yeah, we'll be speaking together uh, a couple of days before the London Marathon at us in a star-studded lineup. So yeah, I'm excited Fantastic. about that. We will talk about it a little bit later on. And hi, Toby Blanford as well. And hi, Osman James. Um, obviously, if you've got any questions for Alex during, then thanks for joining us live, anybody. And and far away, I will get to them eventually. But first, he's mine, so leave him to me. Right, so um, where should we start? I've got so much. I was saying offline just now, my crib sheet is just, I don't think I've got any space left on my laptop. Um, let's start off with... The whole Nike breaking too. I mean, that was fantastic for me because one of the articles which stuck in my mind back in 2014 when you were, I think it was Runner's World, where you were kind of given the task of collecting data and doing what you do um, and predicting when the two-hour marathon was going to get beaten. And you came up with what year? Remind me again. <laughs> 2075. If, you, if, if you're insisting that, that I'm going to be truthful on what my, my prediction was, yeah, I predict 2075. 2075. And I remember, because I think that year I had a, I was talking to Jeff Gordet and Runners Connect, and one of the questions he said at the end was going to be, what do you think about the two-hour marathon? And I remember thinking, right, for that, that's going to be an Alex Hutchinson question. Let's do a search here for sweat science. What's Alex say about it? And I remember coming across that article, and, and I remember kind of spouting it out as if I made it up. But um, no, I did give you credit. But I'm yeah, but lead you astray. <laughs> how um so when you got to breaking two, how how soon after your prediction was that? So yeah, I'm, I did this this Runners World article in 2014, and then it was late 2016 when I, when Runners World first heard from Nike saying, "Hey, we've got this project. It's been under wraps for a couple of years, but it's about to uh, you know emerge from the ocean." And and uh, so yeah, December 2016, two years later, and then another half year, another six months before the actual race took place. Right. So it wasn't like, you know, humans had evolved in those two years. <laughs> exactly. You couldn't claim that the evolution card. So when you arrive there, I mean, this is for me, this is a, a fascinating part of the book um, because it's kind of you mention it and then you, you leave that for a while. It comes back to some other characters and, and, and studies and research and you come back to it. But that was a journey in itself, wasn't it? The time you were there and your belief pattern kind of changed from the day you arrived to fantastic account of the, of the last few minutes of the race. What did you actually think when you arrived? What was your thoughts? So by that time, we had plenty of reason to believe that it wasn't quite so crazy. I still was betting against it. Um, mm-hmm. And I was still surprised, very surprised that Kipchoge came as close as he did. He ended up running two out, two flat 20 and 25 seconds. But, you know, again, l- uh, like I was saying, it's not like humans evolved. The question was what externalities had changed that, that, that make you make Nike or make me believe that it, that it was possible. And so we knew some things were different. 
we knew they had some crazy shoes, although we didn't know as much about the shoes then as we do now. But we knew, I, I, at least I, I had been shown some some data that I considered very reliable that showing that these shoes were considerably faster than any any shoe that had come before. We also knew they were going to do things, some pretty basic bread and butter things like have a course that has no sharp turns and no hills, essentially, of to speak of. Um, and they're going to have perfect pacing. They weren't going to, you know, in London every year, they assemble the greatest field, uh, you know, known to history. And then the, the field goes off and runs the first 5K in 14 minutes or something like that. And you think, well, they've just, they've just blown the race in the first 5K. So there was going to be none of that. The temperature was going to be perfect. They weren't even going to run the race if it was a couple of degrees too hot or too cold. And they were going to have pacemakers to draft. So you add all those things together and it's like, okay, well, if if that was the prediction that someone had asked me about in 2014, I might have made a slightly different I might have made a different answer. I still I still would have thought it's a long shot. I think without the shoes, it wasn't it wasn't gonna happen for me. But um yeah, so my changing belief was was partially as a result of knowledge of changing circumstances. I love your accounts because it seemed to be a totally different they, they were trying everything weren't they Narki? you described some of the things that didn't quite make it and left was stayed on the cutting room floor um talking of shoes for example there was wasn't there talk of like a backlist shoe or something which they yeah tried they, out? so the, i mean the, the thinking in 2014 was that the fastest shoe is the least shoe possible you, you, the only thing you want is what the runner absolutely needs and they thought well most elite runners kind of land midfoot forefoot why do we need a heel let's not waste any energy with a heel and so in theory, that's, that sounds fine. And maybe it's fine for 10 minutes, but towards the end of a marathon, all of a sudden, as you get tired and maybe your, your form is starting to fall apart. And so I remember actually the, the, the story on that is I wrote about those shoes and I, I wrote what they told me, which was basically that they, they, they realized that all the runners hated it and that it was like, no one would run in it. And, and we went through fact checking and the, the, the Nike sources were pushing back and they're like, well, they didn't hate it. They, they, they just, you know, they didn't, didn't love it. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. They, the, the point is no one wanted to run a marathon in that. And whether they hated it or, or just, you know, didn't, didn't appreciate it. Uh, they realized that that was the wrong direction. And that, and that's sort of what spurred them to say, uh, well maybe we should be pushing in the opposite direction maybe we need the heaviest shoe or the the most cushioned shoe possible if we can find a way of making it not heavy you know not like running in boots yeah so i mean we laugh but that is testimony to to how nike have now come up on top after many years of not being there um, by going through these crazy ideas and stumbling upon what seems to be just a, a combination of different factors which has given them kind of them to hit gold for a sec wasn't there also something to do with arms, which maybe there's a lot of moments in your book where I just laughed out loud. And normally yeah. I'm listening to you on a podcast, either in bed, so I wake up my wife, or I'm on a train and there's a strange opposite me and I'm suddenly like coughing my tea in his face. But yeah, what was the arm thing? Yeah, they, they basically tried running guys in a straitjacket. There's been a there's there's been a, a debate for, for decades now. It's like, are the arms useful in running? Are you When you pump your arms, are you just trying to present your, prevent yourself from falling over? Or is it that you just don't know what else to do with your arms? Or are you getting some propulsive benefit? And you can look at the literature over the years and there's conflicting answers as to whether, you know, if you if you just sort of let your arms swing loosely, is that just as good? And and what they found is, you know, let's not just let them swing. Let's let's tie them up. Let's get rid of them. And, and so they had, had them in, you know, basically tied in a straight jacket or with just, you know, just a little bit of movement out to, to just, to, just enough to counterbalance the, the, the motion of the running. And they found massive improvements in 
in running economy, like enough that I, it sort of makes me wonder, is anyone else going to, going to pursue that? Uh, but they, what they said again is, and they tested it with some elite runners. They had Matt Tegenkamp, who's a, a, a sub 13 minute, 1500 meter runner, uh, testing this out and showing improvements in running economy. But he was like, no way. Uh, yeah, I'm not running like this. Stop it. Get someone else. To see this. My, my, uh, my pride is too great for me, for me to try this. They said he looked like a T-Rex. <laughs> or, or like one of the three stooges, uh, you know, doing a, 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 you know, a ministry of silly walks kind of thing. So they were, yeah. And, and to, back to your point, I credit to them. They were, they were willing to try anything, uh, to, to try crazy ideas and to, to live with the fact that 99% of crazy ideas are crazy because they're crazy. But in order to come up with some, some ideas that nobody had really pursued, nobody, nobody was saying, you know what the next big thing is? Massive, huge, heavy, like platform shoes for marathon speed. Nobody was saying that. So it was, it was super surprising and, and impressive that they were able to break out of the, the, the perceptions of what we thought was, was good. Definitely. I just need, before we move on, I just need to, I'm still thinking, were, were you privy to this? Were you watching elite athletes being forced to run down a track with their arms tied to their I, waist? I, I didn't get the T-Rex uh, demonstration. Oh, you didn't get that demonstration. Yeah, I, 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 would, I would have been happy to try it out, but it is. In, so we got to go into the Nike sports research. There was me and myself and uh, Ed Caesar, who was reporting for Wired at the time. And we, we, we got to go into the Nike sports research lab, but it was, it was as if they were allowing us into the heart of the Manhattan project. You know, we, we signed away our lives in triplicate wow. and, you know, you could see snipers at every corner. And if you were to look on the wrong desk, they would have just shot you down. So the, you know, it was a tightly managed, uh, peek into their, their world. They, they're, they're, they were very cautious about what we saw and what we didn't. And this, I mean, when I was kind of putting up some adverts for this, I was saying that your book is is worth buying just for the insights into that um that experience of breaking two it's there's so much more to it but it's some fantastic stories we, we could spend a whole hour on on the the knobs and levers they were trying to to turn and and, and uh look let's, let's acknowledge that it was a super controversial project and and there's a lot of people who uh, perhaps rightly think oh that's not a direction the sport should go in leaving that de debate aside if you just accept that they were going to try and do everything to to, to produce a fast marathon, mm -hmm. they had a ton of fun and they tried a lot of interesting things. And it was a, it was a very um, interesting project to have a window on. And as you point out in the book, and I've heard you um, saying, it was actually more of an achievement, wasn't it? The original Breaking 2, where you're taking off 2 minutes 25, was it? It's Cometo's record. But even though they didn't break the, break the two-hour barrier, finding the way of taking that time off was far more impressive than taking off kind of 25 seconds, wasn't it? To, to me, it was it was a massively bigger surprise to see Kipchoge run two flat 25 in Italy in 2017 than mm. to see him run 159.40 in, in Vienna last fall. Yeah. That was still an impressive performance, but it was like at that point, the, the, the genie was out of the bottle and we knew that there was a lot of stuff going on with the shoes. And we knew that, you know, it's, it was never, no one was ever going to say, oh, two hours is impossible now that he's run two hours, 25. At that point, it was more of a question, just like before any marathon where, you know, what someone is capable of, or maybe even know what you, you what you yourself are capable of, whether you're going to do it on that day is always a great open question. Um, but it's not a question of whether it's theoretically possible. And so I think in Monza, that's what, that's what sort of shifted, uh, you know, for good is that, okay, we know a human can, can move his or her legs that fast. 
the rest is, are they doing it in a fair way? And, and is it going to happen on the day? But it's no longer just humans can't go that fast. I heard myself saying then that wasn't such a big deal but obviously that sounded terrible i was trying to say it because it was incredible i mean we take it for granted don't we that just because he's run that um originally that he can do it again on the day but obviously the concentration and the preparation and everything for kipchoge to do that on the day was was incredible let's take a little look especially for people who haven't seen it before um people listening to the podcast obviously you're just going to hear the commentary to the race now that's why i kind of encourage people to um, go up, pop over to YouTube if you are listening to it on the podcast where you can see the video of it. But I'm just going to put up the last minute of the race and then I want to mention a few things that we're going to see on there. So I'm going to play this now, okay? Miles to school every day and back. He used to go to the nearest town on his bike to sell milk at the local market. And now, through hard work and discipline, he's pointing. Come on, he says. Elia Kipchoge has the hand of history on his shoulder. He has less than 200 metres to go. Elliot Kipchoge, let's keep an eye on the clock, into the final 20 seconds. Elliot Kipchoge Whoa. has on his shoulder. 140, oh. 140, the unofficial oh, line. Oh, his wife. Elliot, Elliot Kipchoge storms into the history books in Vienna. 159.40, the unofficial time. The first man to run a marathon in under two hours. One final lung-busting stride for Kipchoge. One giant leap for human endeavour. And you know, Kipchoge was right. No human is limited. No human is limited. Fantastic. Uh, that was about two o'clock in the morning, wasn't it, for you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was, yeah, it was, I think exciting. it started at two. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, tired, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. And, 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 what everyone's or a lot of people are talking about and people have talked about since is he made it look so easy at the end didn't he it was like he was going for a jog and smiling and waving to people and and that ties in really well to your book because it gives you a chance to suggest what was going on there um what would you yeah, say I what mean, you say about trace what were you feeling when you saw that happening I mean, I was amazed for sure and and seeing him accelerate in the last kilometer was was pretty sort of uh impressive it's 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 not unprecedented so you, you might say well that's crazy no one does that when they're smashing a barrier and if you actually look into it what you find is uh everyone does that when they're setting a world record for the most part uh it's 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 an extremely common phenomenon you'll also find that every 12 year old who runs an 800 meter race will do that uh you you, you start out fast you settle into a a sustainable pace and then you you see the finish line you're like oh wait i've got a, a little more energy um, and this seems to be pretty hardwired into even the the greatest of runners. So that to me doesn't necessarily tell me that he was just jogging the whole way or anything like that. That's it's a fairly human. Um, it seems to be a hardwired facet of our behavior. And what was interesting to me actually was the opposite in Monza when he started to fall behind a little bit. I was still thinking to myself until the last K that he could speed up by ten or fifteen seconds in the last K, maybe get that time back, maybe he's going to do it, and he didn't. And that's actually that's actually a more rare thing than what we saw there in Ineos's with the finishing uh, sprint, and that's one of the things that makes me think, man, in Monza he really was stretched out to to his limits. He was he had immortality sort of receding on the horizon, not that far away, and he couldn't chase it down. So I think he was he had got everything out of himself. Whereas it's pretty clear on this day that, you know, if 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 he'd been on pace for two flat ten, 
he would have found 10 seconds and, and been able to accelerate a little bit. Mm. How much do you think, how far behind is someone else who could have done what he did? How much is down to just him as a person and all the factors that make him up? It's a great question because especially in the, in the era of Vaporfly shoes and now Alphafly shoes, um, there's a lot of debate about for for a while, I think it was pretty much a consensus that Kipchoge is the greatest marathoner in history. You put together just not, not only his times, his Olympic gold medal, but his consistency, what, what is it, 11 or 12 marathons now, uh, which is unprecedented. So he's got this amazing streak. But now as, as it becomes more clear how good the shoes are, there's this question mark of actually, is he just a, a 203 guy who's who's been lucky enough to get the earliest prototypes of the greatest shoes in history? And the counter argument to that, or at least the just the point of discussion is, okay, but where's everybody else? He's not the only one getting these shoes. There were three runners at Monza. Who is close to him? And so there've been a few guys running 202 and, and maybe more to the point, a few guys that no one had ever heard of until they ran 202 running 202. So there's a sense that, uh, and, and in those races, Kipchoge was, you know, 30 seconds ahead or something like that. So he's, in races where he's been pitted against the best runners in the world, he's cons more consistent than anyone has ever been, and he's ahead of them. It's not clear that he's three minutes ahead of them. Mm -hmm. He's he's thirty seconds or a minute or something like that. So, but it's hard to answer these questions because on any given day he's running to win, right? So maybe maybe in London he's he's actually ninety seconds better than those guys, but he's just keeping his powder dry until until he knows he's ready to to pull away. Um, but I, I think it'll be interesting in the in the years to come to see whether Kipchoge was at the vanguard of an era where everyone's running two flat two hundred one, or whether he, or whether as I like to believe, I'm a bit of a I don't know, call it a romantic. I like to believe that he is head and shoulders above not just his own generation, but but you know, any generation that's come before. But it it is hard to judge that these days as the shoes keep changing almost more quickly than we can than we can take stock of it. Yeah. It was a total surprise, wasn't it? The whole things have changed so much now with the shoes and what we know about them, and and then the the rules kind of going backwards and forwards. But and we could eat, like you say. I mean, if anyone is really interested in the shoes, I really, 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 really enjoyed um, your uh, chat on Podchat Live with uh, right, Craig yeah, Payne yeah. and Ian Griffiths. It's very worth. Um, yeah, anyone who's interested in the shoes because the the stuff you come out with there and the debate um, with Ian Craig was fantastic. So definitely go and check that out if you're interested in the shoes and the future. Um, Alex has got some fantastic gems on that. So anyway, um, the book provides some some great insight into that, but obviously it's not just that at all. It then paves the way for what actually causes um, people to stop. What causes fatigue? What causes pain um do we stop because our body lets us down or is it as noakes would say like a central governor stopping us to protect us from doing injury and that sort of stuff so before we do that <clears throat> we never get too serious on this um i know the answer to this and i took a bit of a gamble but in the book the, the wonderful thing about you or oh, one of the incredible things about you is you test out a lot of this stuff on yourself um you're a fantastic runner which a lot of people probably don't realize the extent of your running. Did you crack the four minute mile in the end? What are you now? My 1500 meter best, apparently according to the official IAAF tables is equivalent to four flat 0 0.01 seconds. <laughs> there we go. Okay. So that's good enough for me. Exactly. So um, there you go. That gives you an idea of people who we're talking to. So that gives you the, the, the ability to actually put a lot of these um, 
tests and things to practice, which you have done, which you described during the book. But to give us an example of your dedication, what tell me what was going on in this photo, or what rather had just happened in this photo. <laughs> <coughs> I'm having a coughing fit, just laughing. Um, so for those who are who are not seeing the visuals, it's a picture of me in a homely looking uh, uh, electric brain stimulation bike tour um, through the Alps where we were spending a week cycling great alpine passes and every morning we would get or evening we would get electric brain stimulation from a sports medicine team that works with one of the top uh, uci grand tour cycling teams so to sort of experience this is what they're doing with the pro riders um and in this particular case we were riding up i think it was uh Galibier, and uh it was a, a absolutely brutal uh rainstorm at just above freezing followed by snowstorm at higher altitudes and um, I, I stubbornly insisted on getting to the top rather than hopping into the, the van like everybody else did. So they patiently waited while I sort of made it to the top with basically right on the border of hypothermia. I couldn't even operate my brakes anymore. And fortunately, just on the other side of the pass, there's a nice little pub. We went in there and you know I walked in looking like something the cat had dragged in. And so the barmaid immediately you know, ran behind the counter and pull, pulled out this bathrobe and... Uh, uh, put it over my shoulders. So the picture shows me comfortably, comfort, comfortably uh, ensconced in this bathrobe, sipping some hot chocolate after what was actually a pretty fun, uh, a fun in the in the sense of terrible uh, ride up a, a, a Swiss Alp. Just because you mentioned electric brain stimulation, like it was on Sunday I do a long run, or Monday I do electric brain stimulation. What what was that all about? Yeah, was so it? it's 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 a. Uh, it's a good example of the kind of thing that I find fascinating, but I'm very skeptical of. Um, and the, the idea here is electric brain stimulation. It's it's a, a very low uh, current that you run through your brain. You can do it. It's basically like a nine volt battery and a couple of electrodes. And it the region, whatever region of the brain you affect, it changes the sort of baseline uh, polarization of the neurons so that they're, they become a little more likely to fire, uh, to communicate with each other in response to whatever you're doing. And you can arrange it in such a way, at least according to, to some experiments, that you basically alter your perception of effort, that whatever you're doing starts to feel a little bit easier. Um, and so as a result, you can keep going for a little bit longer. You can push yourself a little bit harder. There have been a couple dozen studies on this. Initially, they looked quite promising. Um, as people have gotten more rigorous with the studies, the results have started to look a little less convincing. So I'm, I, I don't know whether it works. But it's definitely something out there. Uh, there's a there's a company called Halo Neuroscience, basically selling brain stimulation headphones. And there's a bunch of teams, including uh, Bahrain Merida, which was the team that I was visiting in in Italy, uh, using not commercial devices but their own sort of medical grade devices, which they <laughs> they go around and 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 zap their cyclists with. So it's a, it's to me, if it works, what it tells you know, aside from the does it. Does it, uh, you know, enhance your performance or not? But if it works even under controlled, just only even only under controlled lab lab conditions, it's a nice uh, uh, sort of convenient illustration of this idea that what feel like physical limits are actually uh, decided in your brain. If you can change your physical limits by by changing how your neurons are talking to each other, then it's a reminder that when it feels like your legs can't take another step or maintain the pace. It's not necessarily that your legs are physically incapable of doing that. It's that your brain has decided it's 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 in your best interests to slow down a bit or to to stop or whatever the case may be. So that's why I find it so fascinating. But it is a bit crazy to be actually uh, trying it, to be honest.
Yeah, but it's and there's plenty of examples of you. We'll chat about some others as they come up. Um, yeah, about you testing things out and some of the things you put you put yourself through are quite incredible. Um, and we'll mention them later on. But going back to yeah, what we're talking about. Basically, we're talking about what um, well, Tim Noakes, Professor Tim Noakes, is quite famous for with his central governor theory and his law of running book. Um, that's something which kind of stimulated you back in. When was law of running? Eighty something. Well, yeah, he he wrote he first wrote it in the mid '80s. I got my first copy. I think it was the 1990 uh, or 91 edition in North America, and I I read it cover to cover. It was I was in high school at the time, and it was uh, um, it was the first book and and really the definitive book of, of running that I had. It that those that edition doesn't mention the central governor. He hadn't come up with the idea at that point. Ah, right. So he he sort of came up with it late '90s. He gave a speech in about '96, I think, at a conference that started to explore these ideas. So it's only the revised editions that have it. And it, for me, it wasn't till probably 2006 or so that I, when I was starting out as a science journalist, that I came across some of his some of Noakes's papers that were questioning some really quote unquote obvious things like I, I think the first paper of his that I came across that really caught my attention again was does dehydration impair endurance performance and I was like what kind of a stupid question is that but then I read it and I was like oh the research is less clear than I thought and so I read some more papers came across this central governor idea and uh, that got me really interested and I, I you know for the initial plan for what became Endure was basically the the world according to Tim Noakes um, and it it evolved from there, but he really got me interested in this idea that maybe there's a little bit more than just my legs are full of lactic acid and therefore I have to slow down. Yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, that's really interesting. I didn't realize that the central governor theory came kind of afterwards. It was added on later on. Was, did he, was he kind of, was that a journey he was already kind of on and he, and he, and he was it kind of mentioned or kind of, was he leading to that in the original copy or? I, I not that not that I have picked up, and I still have right. that 1990 copy on my shelf to my, to my left. I think mm. he was he when I talked to him. I eventually I had a chance to sort of visit his lab. I think he was starting to explore these ideas as early as the 80s. Starting to say right. that this picture we have where VO2 max is is everything, and it doesn't make sense. And he was starting to publish some ideas in the in the 80s, questioning it. But he he didn't formulate it as a theory or as a model per se until the until really the late 90s or even early 2000s is when it's really when he really sort of got down to business with some of his collaborators and uh and, and fleshed out what became this model okay great um let's just say hi to a few people who've joined us and it's reminded me of something actually we're talking about tim notes as if everybody knows and has read it and, and understands central governor theory but we'll come back to the second just want to say hi to tom tom goom is listening on his drive home busy man that tom Hi, Tom. How are you doing? <laughs> uh, Nick Knight, podiatrist, um, is also um, listening. So, hey, Nick, thanks for joining us. Um, love the stuff you're putting out lately with Run3D. Um, Katie Napton is here. Hi, Katie. Lydia Campbell, who's a, just a fantastic person, another local to Brighton like myself. She's in the house. Um, and J James Morgan is here. These names probably mean very little to you. Um, although you do spend quite a lot of time on social media these days. I didn't realize how much time you actually are on social media. <laughs> more, more than I wish I did, but somehow it's <laughs> it's fun. And so, yeah, yeah. It these similar. are all people who who I feel like, James Morgan, for example, I feel like I have met, but I haven't. I've just seen pictures of him with his kind of wolves and stuff, but um, he's watching whilst eating cheese. And Matt Hart as well. This is, I love my yeah. job. Well, it's not a job. I love this, seeing people. So thanks for joining us. Um, so some of you I know, particularly runners as opposed to therapists, are not that aware of what central governor theory um, proposed and and also why 
it caused so many feathers to be ruffled. So could you just kind of break down in a nutshell what the central governor theory proposes and maybe give some examples which lead to that being a, a more likely hypothesis than the traditional? Yeah, so I mean, I guess that basically what the central governor theory or model would say is that you you can't push yourself to your true physical limits, that we have a, a, a protective mechanism and the, the, the details or the ideas of how or why that works have, have evolved or changed over the years. Um, but the, you know, initially it was sort of the idea that, oh, if you, if you push too hard, you'll, you'll, you won't be able to get enough oxygen to your heart or to your brain and you'll, you'll have a heart attack and die. Um, I think these days people would sit, would be more likely to say it's more of an evolutionary thing where we've, we've learned to conserve energy, you know, don't waste energy. And, and we've, you know, maybe it's the, the, uh, you know, the hunters who would chase the antelope across the savannah until they sort of keeled over, uh, didn't make it back to the campfire and pass on their genes. And so we have this sort of behavioral, this thing called fatigue, which, which becomes quite extreme at, at the closer we get sort of like a, uh, you know, an object, as it gets closer to the speed of sound, it gets heavier and heavier and harder to accelerate. As we get closer to our limits, we, uh, find it harder and harder to keep going. And so. I mean, and, and, and there's, there's various ways you can sort of illustrate what this feels like. One of this is these things as we were talking about earlier is the fact that even when people want run world records, it's like they're running as hard as they can. And then they see the finish line and they speed up almost as if they sort of on some level realize, oh, the danger is past. We're not going to keel over and die. We're going to be able to stop in a sec. So we can un unlock some of this energy we've been saving. Um, and so the, as as the debate has moved on in the last decade, say, um, there, there's a lot of debate of, well, is this some sort of unconscious involuntary protective mechanism? Or is this just called pacing? We're just, this is just a function of like, we're rational, intelligent people. And so we don't, you know, if it's a marathon and you're more than eight years old, you don't just take off at a sprint. And so, you know, and it's possible to pace perfectly. So you often have some energy left over. Or is it as as some other some sort of rival theories that have I think grown out of the central governor model would argue it's is it more okay it's sort of a conscious thing that we just have a, per a perception of effort that we're always balancing how hard does this feel and how hard am I willing to push and at a certain point you re you get to a point where it, it's not about your legs have uh, reached some critical state it's just it's too hard it, it you have to put in too much effort and so you decide to stop as opposed to the initial central governor, which was, you don't even know what's happening. You're just being kind of slowed down. Um, so anyway, you know, this is a, a sort of a long rambling answer, but the, there, there's a lot of nuances to it, but the, the fundamental thing that I think has, it has stayed pretty constant in, in, in the theory and other theories is, uh, you don't reach your physical limits because there's some physiological variable that has hit 100%. The variable that has hit 100% is how hard it feels. It's a perceptual measure in your head. Yeah. I think most runners can relate to that where you think you can't go any further and you see the finish line and then suddenly you're sprinting for that kind of money shot when you cross the line. And, and I think it's very useful and definitely I've used it for helping educate people with regards to modern concepts in pain the idea that pain is the output and just because something is hurting isn't a measure of damage so it's kind of ties in very nicely with that which is what made it so exciting for me interesting um, yeah 
there's definitely parallels with it and also there's the danger of people suddenly thinking oh pain's all in my head and you can separate the brain from the body and it becomes this kind of like dichotomy that doesn't really exist so there's the same pitfalls but i think for a lot of therapists and runners it's good to go through the theory and and take you know take home what the message is is that yeah our body is strong and robust and one of these signs is it actually defends us it's got this alarm system which is fantastic and it won't let us kill ourselves it's got limits which is healthy and it helps people get better i think if they are injured they realize pain is actually the defense and not the defect sort of thing yeah that's and and i mean i think it's also important to to sort of avoid to make the point that it's important not to flip to the opposite extreme and then conclude that it's all, everything's in my head like you were saying both in a mm -hmm. an injury perspective and in a performance perspective that you can't just decide that you want to get an hour faster for the marathon and it doesn't matter how tough you are um we're working within a physical constraint, but just understanding that there's a more dynamic back and forth between body and mind than, than we may have, uh, assumed. I think it can be, it can be helpful to, to, to see the times in when you're maybe limiting yourself prematurely or, or, uh, but, but it doesn't give you superpowers necessarily. No, not super, superpowers. But then when the accumulative effect of it, like I remember one year in Brighton Marathon where, where I am, um, it was a really hot year. I can't remember if it was a few years ago. I wasn't running because I'd had kids and little toddlers. There was no way I was going to be able to train and sleep enough. So I took to actually filming a bit of it, and I took some footage just to make a point over. I got some lovely classic footage of people who were overpronating, and yet they were set to do a 320 marathon it was like shock horror surely they should stop and buy some stability shoes sort of thing it was cynical me lying in his belly filming marathon runners and also heel strikes as well i was kind of doing my own version of pete larson's kind of manchester marathon showing that and it's all i felt very important it was great but one of the things i did notice because i was trying to track some runners because it was such a hot year and after seeing people later in clinic some people really did badly um they had to stop the effect on them was was it was just they weren't continue yet other people actually got their pbs and they were actually did better than any other year even on a year where it was less hot and i was kind of thinking this around in my mind and eventually i came up with this theory that if you see kind of marathon roadkill so people lying down with st john's ambulance pumping them and stuff and people have just stopped depending on your personality you could interpret that in two ways you could either look at them and think oh my god they're really suffering i'm the same i'm immortal and i'm going to suffer as well which could have a disastrous effect on you and you still feel the fatigue or you could think wow look at them they're really weak i'm not like that i'm superhuman and i think that's what happened to some people because i asked people on the couch i said when you saw the people in trouble did you feel like oh look at them i feel really bad now i'm going to stop as well or did you think wow they're really weak i'm superhuman and there was kind of like a correlation with that people who did really well actually got enthused by seeing the devastation and it made them feel it empowered them whereas other people took it the other way so i thought that was quite a nice example of how important the actual perception um, is of what you see visually Does that kind of makes sense yeah and i think i think heat's a great example of of one of those things where it's definitely not all in your head heat has a you know effect you're not going to set a world record in heat hot conditions but there's also plenty of evidence that your perception of heat that we slow down before we actually get hot to put it another way i mean one this is this is actually one of the sort of early lines of research in in noxus lab it's like you go you send someone out for a 10k on a, on a warm day they don't just run at their usual pace until they reach some sort of critical heat uh you, you know their muscles start to boil and they slow down they slow down right from the start uh you know even if the, even if you don't tell them how 
uh, hot it is because they're already sort of perceiving I'm going to be in trouble at some point. And so they're making some estimates and those estimates may be fundamentally conservative. I mean, it depends on the person. So they may be holding, ho keeping themselves sa safe by holding themselves back more than they need to. And so then when you, you take it a step further and say, okay, well, let's do these sorts of experiments, but let's mess around with the thermometers so that it reads hotter than it really is, or it reads cooler than it really is. You discover that the, the reading on the thermometer, their, 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 their knowledge of the temperature actually has as much of an effect or, you know, a large effect, uh, you know, as large an effect as the actual heat. So both are real, but one is under your control. You can't, con you can't control the temperature, but you can control, uh, whether you're being excessively cautious, but what defines excessively cautious is of course a tough question. And so sometimes it is better to be a little extra cautious and make it to the finish line. And we saw that at the world championships, uh, last year in Doha, where the most successful marathoners were those who basically just set out at a jog and were able to keep sort of moving through the field. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a great example of you can't pick one or the other. You need, you need to understand both. Yeah. There's some, there's some incredible examples. I mean, the story of what we regard as heat stroke and also the idea of dehydration and how, what we imagine the traditional concepts, um, just, I mean, one of the things which struck me and made me think, oh, yeah, light bulb moments is where, like a lot of people in theory suffering from heat stroke, it always seems to get you when you cross that line. You know, it's very rare that people collapse halfway through a race and it kind of that. And you brought that out. OK, so obviously maybe it's I can't remember who it was, who was it your thought or was it someone else who thought what's well, something to do with stopping? And that led to some studies, didn't it? Or that's actually Noakes, Tim Noakes. Was it Noakes? He, oh, right. He's uh, he, he he's had a big influ influence in challenging conventional wisdom in a lot of different areas. Hmm. Um, but it's yeah, and and the link between dehydration and heat is is definitely not as cl clear as it seems. Uh, and and if you're going to get heat stroke, you're probably more likely to get it on a hot day in a 10k than you are in a marathon because it has to do with heat production. And in a 10k, you can go faster. You can you can basically turn your engine up hotter. Uh, whereas in a marathon, uh, it's, it's hard, you, you have to sustain a lower, you have a lower intensity because you're out there for longer. So you actually are a little bit less likely to, uh, to, to run into heat stroke and, and yeah. And, and, and a lot of things that we call heat stroke may well have nothing to do with heat stroke. It's just that you cross the line, you stop running, uh, your blood pressure drops because you're no longer pumping blood. You're no longer using your legs as sort of calf muscle pumps to pump blood. And so blood pools in your legs and you, and you collapse. And you're hot because you just ran a marathon in, in hot conditions. But the only reason you collapsed was because you had uh, uh, a, a drop in blood pressure. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's some great. I think Alberto Salazar was an example of that, wasn't there? The, was it the duel in the sun or something? Or Well, he has had a couple he where he was sort of, uh, you know, had his read his last rites because he collapsed. Yeah. And people always attribute that to dehydration. But uh, it, it may well just be he, he's not well equipped to handle hot conditions he's bad in the heat and he's a super he was a super tough racer he, he was able to push himself and heat is one seems to be one place where this the quote-unquote central governor uh isn't perfect it's it, it it can be uh you you can it's very hard to if i if i get up right now and just run down the street and say i'm going to run myself unconscious I, I won't be able to i'll get tired before i can run myself unconscious in heat, it's just, it's still very hard to do that, but people seem to be a little bit more likely to be able to do that in hot conditions. The, as you're talking, I'm thinking there's so much in your book where there's this comedy in the book with some of the examples. And then there's also some quite, I mean, your book got very macabre and gruesome when you were talking about how 
testament to how some people survived um, dehydration and how long they managed to survive without. <laughs> Are you thinking of the particular example that I'm thinking of? Or yeah, those those of... guys in the desert for uh, I don't know, I can't remember how long it was. Kept alive by the the hope of knifing his his uh, the guy he thought had betrayed him for the the location of the hidden gold mine. And it just yeah, the description of the you know his gums peeled back and all yeah. the cuts on his legs, which are just dry because he had no more fluid. Uh, but yeah, so it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you can't look at the Guinness book of world records to see how long you can last without liquid because you, you know, th those people die, but, but occasionally mm -hmm. you get these anecdotal reports of perhaps, um, you don't really know the accuracy of the report, but, uh, um, you, you can, it, it sounds like there's some pretty gruesome Oh, some of them. And then there was the, there was the, I can't remember how many days it was. It might have been 18 days in the basement. The policeman chucked him down there and he survived. Yeah, some small by... town in Austria or something. And they, they put him in the basement of the chateau and then totally forgot about him. And apparently, so the, the, and again, nobody really knows this guy has not, yeah, he's totally traumatized. He hasn't really talked. He doesn't give press interviews or anything, but the theory was it was such a dank and unpleasant basement. There was condensation on the walls. So he was able to maybe lick some condensation from the, 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 the walls of his basement cell that, that allowed him to take, yeah, I think it was 17 or 18 days with, with, uh, with no food and no water, which is, which was in the Guinness book of world records for a long time. I think. I, in modern editions, I think they've stripped out some of these records because they don't want people going for them. Yeah, that makes sense, especially in this day and age. Let's go to, I mean, there's also some fantastic studies on the subject of um, dehydration, for example. Um, you bring up some amazing studies which were done basically to show that, I mean, one that comes to my mind was differentiating between um, the actual swallowing mechanism, thinking telling your body that you're actually going to have water, but then not having the water and showing that performance was still actually there. Tell us about a few of those studies. I think it was with cyclists mainly, was it? And Yeah. I mean, and some of them are just basically looking at, at, at thirst mechanisms, not even with exercise, but yeah, sticking nasogastric tubes uh, basically down into your stomach. And so you can disambiguate it. You can have someone swallow water and simultaneously you can suck the same amount of water out of their stomach. So you get the pleasant feeling of water going down your throat or you can do the opposite. You don't let, any, let them drink anything, but you just infuse water into someone's stomach directly. And so they're as hydrated as they would be if they drank, but they didn't get the, they didn't activate the sensors in their throat that tell them that, oh, there's cool, refreshing water going down my throat. And then uh, there, there's other studies where they just infuse water uh, or, or, or saline directly into the, the bloodstream uh, again, and, or, and, and they do it blinded. So you're, you're cycling. And there's a guy behind a curtain who, who's got a, a needle into your arm or whatever. And you don't know whether you're be give, being given fluid or not. And whenever you do studies like this, what you discover is that the effects of hydration, of actual hydration in your body, are way less significant than uh, what you find if you, if you have a study where you know you're drinking. Because you, otherwise, you know you're drinking or you're not drinking. And if you're not drinking, you're like... This sucks, man. Why, you know, why am I in, I in the group that has to sit on this exercise bike for three hours? You haven't let me drink anything for five hours before the study. And now I'm doing this three hours in this hot room. Uh, you know, people are pissed off and their performance suffers. And they're like, and then you say, see, dehydration is brutal, man. Even a little bit of heat, you're, you're screwed. You can't do it. And it's like, well, actually, if you rehydrate them with the, with the IV, they're, they're, they're fine. Or if you let them, you know, t drink a little bit of water to wet their whistle. Um, 
it's not that dehydration doesn't do anything. It, again, just like heat, dehydration has effects, mm -hmm. but some of those effects are mediated by our expectations and by we have sensors in our throat, in our mouth, the, the, the feeling of cool water going down your throat. It's like, ah, everything's going to be fine. I'm hydrated again. And that's why, you know, in, in the hydration literature, there's arguments about, well, what does it mean to drink to thirst or just to drink till you're not thirsty anymore, till you're full? There's a lot of nuances because you can feel pretty good just by taking a, a, you know, a few swigs of cold water. Yeah. And it's still by no means resolved, is it? There's still very much oh, two camps. Definitely not. Yeah. Two camp, maybe, there's maybe 20 camps, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, two, two main ones. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's it, like so many things in science is pretty polarized. And so, mm -hmm. um, there, there, there aren't a lot of, um, I don't want to say this in a way that sounds like people are rigging the results cause they're not, but it's like the way you design studies influences the answers you get. And it's so that everyone's sort of quite good at getting the, the results that they expect, uh, what, you know, just on a subconscious level. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think, and, and the unfortunate, like the, the hard message to give that, that I would think that I, that I believe is that the answer is somewhere in the middle that, yeah, people have switched from, you have to drink as much as you can all the time, or at least as much as you can tolerate to just drink when you're thirsty, you'll be fine. And I think from a health perspective, if you're going out for a run, a Sunday long run, just drink when you're thirsty, you'll be fine. But if you're trying to maximize your performance in a marathon, it gets more complicated, first of all, because in, along with drinking, you're trying to take in fuel to carbohydrate or whatever your the case may be. So it's not just about hydration, but I, I even aside from that point, I think there's more to it than just drinking according to thirst at, at, at that level, if you want to really optimize your performance. So I find that people tend to be in either one camp or the other. It's either, you know, you have to have the full science dehydration plan, or you're just like, dude, it's going to be fine. You know, I'll find some water on the side of the road and I, I don't need to worry about anything. And it's like, ah, I, I'm, I'm in the middle on that, to be honest. Yeah. I think, I think it's kind of when you, when you, I'm going to get later on to what some of the reactions to your book have been, but I think it's all about waiting, isn't it? Some people put too much emphasis thinking if I drink continuously during my race, I'm going to be, have the energy to get to the end and everything's going to be fine. <clears throat> and when people realize that the water is probably not making as much difference as they think compared to other factors in their control, maybe even just um, how you feel. I mean, there was a lovely example of where you tried to put everything you'd learned, or a lot of the factors together for you. Was it your first marathon? It was my you first used marathon, some yeah. of Marcora's kind of, and it was great yeah. because you were kind of, you were swishing water and you had people strategically placed to hold up signs and things. And, and uh, what else? And you'd done the, oh yeah, you did the, the brain training. Yeah. Tell us a bit about the brain training because that was like, that was, that was the worst moment of my life. Yeah. There we go. No. <laughs> tell us about the worst moment of your life. Let's bring it all up again. <laughs> so the, yeah, the idea here was um, going back again, going back to the idea that your perception of effort that matters is that there's now over the last 10 years, one of the most sort of interesting trends in sports science has been uh, the recognition that mental fatigue impairs physical performance that, that if you're, if you spend a lot of time thinking, you know, if you're doing your calculus homework or whatever, and then you go out and, and uh, tr try and run a race, your ability to sort of hold your finger close as close to the flame as possible and push yourself is it, it may be compromised. 
And so the question is, how do you how do you deal with that? And and look, the honest the 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 takeaway answer that I hope that people should remember is, well, you you become aware of mental fatigue and you make sure you're well rested mentally as well as physically. If you take you, you know you taper before a marathon, you should also not do your taxes the day before a marathon. Give yourself a break, chill out, make sure you're mentally fresh. But another approach is to say, well, maybe I can make my brain resistant to mental fatigue. And, you know, if I want to build my physical endurance, I go out and do physically tiring things and my body adapts. So if I do mentally fatiguing things, I should be able to train my brain to, to resist mental fatigue. And, uh, one of the, so one of the, the ways they induce mental fatigue is you sit at a computer and you do these kind of computer games that are fairly simple, um, you know, shapes and letters flashing on the screen, you respond to them. Uh, as quickly as possible. You do that for 90 minutes and you, you know, you're ready to shoot yourself and, uh, but it induces mental fatigue. So I tried for 12 weeks. I tried to, I tried doing that. I built up to, I can't remember if I got up to 80 or 90 minutes as my, as my longest session. I was doing it about five times a week. Um, and look the, the you know, the, the plain truth is I have no idea whether it made any difference to my marathon performance. It was my first marathon. You know, yeah, I can't, I can't judge whether it helped, but I do know that, um, the, it, I'd have to improve by an hour to make it worth sitting through those brain training sessions, especially, you know, you, you've got a job and a family and you're trying to train for a marathon, which takes time already. And then you're like, Oh, by the way, honey, I also need to, I can't help with dinner tonight. Cause I also need to go spend an hour in front of the computer clicking buttons in response to, to, uh, you know, a square versus a circle. Um, it, it, it doesn't fly very well. Yeah. You paint a fantastic picture in the book of, of you, <laughs> after five minutes just flaking out and then i mean i think we should mention professor samuel markora here because that was all he does a lot of work on that doesn't he? let's bring him up here his name seems to come up in your book nearly as much as Noakes. so tell us a bit about this guy and uh, yeah yeah involved. absolutely so markora is is uh samuel markora he's an italian researcher he he's been at the university of kent for a long time although he's uh recently i think he's in the process of moving to an appointment in italy uh maybe university of bologna i think but i, I could be wrong so don't quote me on that um He's done a, a lot of really interesting work that um, I think the way I would characterize it, and he would strenuously disagree, but I, I would characterize it as taking the ideas that Noakes sort of planted and then starting to test them and, and put and put them on a more uh, uh, falsifiable um, basis, so that he, you know, we can say, okay, what is it, what would it mean if if uh, if it was, if it were true that our physical limits are dictated by perception of effort, how can we m manipulate perception of effort? How can we change it and see if it, if, if, if our physical limits are dictated by the legs or the muscles? So he's done a lot of very elegant experiments. Uh, um, and you know, he would say his work has nothing to do with Tim Noakes's, that it's a separate, uh, uh category. Um, and that's, that's an argument that I don't want to, I mean, uh, I, am not the judge of, of whose work is influenced by whom, but to me, he's, he's kind of the, the person who's most effectively taken up the baton that Noakes planted in the late nineties and taken it to the, to the next level of trying to have a coherent theory that makes predictions that we can test about what the best ways are of enhancing performance, including things like trying to, uh, build resistance to mental fatigue. Yeah. And, um, the books, I mean, one of the things which I see, most of the people you kind of fall in with are kind of a little bit masochistic in themselves. All your your favorite researchers seems to be people who are willing to put themselves through hell as well to prove their point. And Marco is no exception, isn't he? Because he did his, what was it, 13,000 mile motorcycle ride 
um beijing and london to beijing wasn't it which was just a crazy trip and you describe it in great detail wonderful detail in the books one of many um, incredible people and, and, and testing himself every morning and every evening for uh you know reaction time and he was giving himself a sequence of uh pills where he didn't know whether or not he was getting caffeine that day to see whether you know it would enhance his ability to not crash he did in fact crash and broke his can't remember what he broke his oh yeah you mentioned arm or something like his ribs ankle and shattered rib yeah. yeah so so uh it yeah i was sort of jealous of the trip it sounded awesome but then as i as i heard more about it from him, i'm like yeah i'm not sure i want to be riding across the the tibetan plateau in soft sand on a motorcycle with a broken ankle that that, that sounds like it's actually quite challenging it was him with a team was it was it by himself i can't remember there was a few of them yeah it was a group it was a there was yeah. a, a travel group so he had he had people with him but uh you know that only goes so far yeah it's quite incredible and i think i mentioned before off air i asked whether because some of the descriptions of the people doing research on themselves in particular is almost it's an ethical question of should we kind of encourage these people to do it because if you're going to test the limits of human endurance you're going to take yourself to some pretty nasty places you sitting in front of a computer hitting a button when it was a dot or a square we can live with when it comes to people actually taking themselves very close to some well let's bring up for example um i think because we're running out of time i just want to give a mention in particular to this guy here um, yeah yeah who is probably is the first story in your book showing an example of um the limits of endurance yeah um, henry worsley henry worsley which was a well an attempted um crossing wasn't it of solo crossing of the antarctic and a tragic death as well it's a real sad story but it's yeah important because it sets the scene for the question which i think prompted notes in yourself is why do more endurance athletes not die you know what is yeah, exactly, exactly. It's not the opposite question of what you think yeah, yeah. It's, it's that uh you know people are extremely motivated uh it's not uh, it, it especially like and one of noakes's examples in, on a similar vein is he shows a picture of uh the finish of the night just after the finish of the 1996 olympic marathon where i think the winning margin was three seconds and the two the first and second place finisher jogging around the track waving their flags a few seconds or you know after the finish and it's like this guy just lost the olympic marathon by three seconds and he's <sighs> jogging now and it's not yeah, that he wasn't yeah. trying hard he was trying as hard as a human can try if people could run themselves to death they would uh but they can't they can't it's very very hard to sort of you know, in the absence of, you know, I'm not talking about slave galleys and things like that, but in the, in, in a sort of purely uh, voluntary way, it's very hard to run yourself to death. And, and, you know, Henry Worsley is, it's arguable whether he's an example of this, but he, he did this extremely, extremely arduous thing where, where unlike say Ernest Shackleton, Worsley didn't have to decide, oh, okay, things are getting rough. I need better turn back because I need to make it all the way back home. He knew he could call on his satellite phone for extraction. So he was able to kind of keep pushing right to the point where he thought, I literally cannot go on. And so he did that. And then by the time he called, he, he realized sort of 71 days or something into his trip that he, he, he couldn't keep going. He called and, you know, he was picked up, I don't know, six hours later or something like that. But he died in the hospital in, in Chile shortly after from massive mm -hmm. organ failure. Um, he probably the, the theory now is they think he had an ulcer which burst which gave him a bacterial infection and stuff so uh, it, it's not it wasn't a simple case of him just sort of going until his legs fell off but uh. it was a case of someone who was so exceptionally motivated that despite what must have been just crippling fatigue he kept going 
to the point where it was impossible to save him. So, you know, it's, it's a, uh, tremendously sad, but fortunately also tremendously rare because he didn't get, he didn't starve to death. He didn't get eaten by a shark or anything. It wasn't, mm. there wasn't something specific that killed him. It was, it was this, this sort of pushing and pushing. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's an amazing opening to the book, almost opening to the book. And, and there's plenty of other characters in there as well that you talk about who fortunately didn't die, but it just it's the book has got so much in it. And unfortunately we haven't got time to mention them all. Um, but that's probably a good thing because all those people aren't going to bother watching it. That's right. Book yeah, that's right. To this. Pick up the book and you'll see all those other characters. But I think it's worth um, having a like a preemptive. We mentioned it off air. I've seen some criticism. Well, some one person on Amazon, I think, kind of said, "Oh, this book bloody doesn't give you any answers. What's the point of that?" And and I kind of read it and thought, "You so haven't got the point of this, have you, mate?" It's like. But then I thought, because your 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 book, um, which comes first, cardio or weights was kind of a top 50 kind of miss and here's what you can do instead but this book never set out to do that did it yeah it was it was a it was a deliberate choice and and let me say first that i actually i absolutely understand that criticism and i i've actually i've had that comment from other people at talks and stuff that saying you know what i got to the end and i wasn't sure what the answer was so what are we supposed to do and it's like yeah you and me both i don't know what the answer is either uh i i enjoyed sort of exploring the the dark byways of 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 what endurance really means but i don't have a i don't have a sort of five easy steps to to smash your pbs and and the reason one yeah put it this way i i've i've been in magazine journalism long enough that i know how to write a uh, five ways to do x or five ways to do y i mean that's the sort of general general formula for magazine pieces so i i know how to do that but i didn't want to do that here because uh once you once you decide that these are the these are the five pieces of practical advice I'm gonna that I'm gonna give. It it immediately makes you start seeing all the research through the through the lens of those pieces of advice. So I didn't and I you know this is just a human way. If I had done that, I would have started to sculpt the whole book to lead toward those the practical advice. And I wanted to have the freedom to if. We don't know the answer to what's the right way to hydrate for a marathon. If if it's a sort of well, there's a it's a continuum, and some people need to drink more and some people less. I wanted to be able to leave it hanging there instead of trying to boil it into a book. So that was you know I, that was a discussion I had with my agent right, right at the start, and then with my editor saying I, like I don't I don't want to do this, and they're like, well, okay, it's your funeral, man. You like <laughs> you can do it. It's pe people are people want advice, and I understand that. I want I want the sort of what's the bottom line? What's the what do we take away from this? Um, and ultimately, the bottom line I hope people will take away from the book is not do these six things. It's uh, that the limits of endurance are a lot less clear cut than they feel sometimes that when you, when you're pushing it's your limit and you just feel like, well, I guess that's what my legs were capable of. That's seldom really the case. And there's a billion things that may or may not have been affecting your perception of those limits, but it wasn't just that your legs were, were completely incapable of, of going farther. Yeah. I think, I mean, I'm biased and like I sort of alluded to before, I think it's a really healthy message because it makes people realize and it's so significant when it comes to pain and injury that your body is robust and strong. It's got these defense mechanisms and, and people aren't as fragile as they think they are. And it's just a healthy message that it just puts the bio psycho into, you know, and the social aspects all together. I think it all fits in very nicely. 
Um, so it is a very healthy book for runners to read. There will be misconceptions like, oh, right, so you're saying that my legs are fine to go. I just got to convince myself. And it's not that clear. Cut. <laughs> yeah. But you can do a lot worse, can't you? Especially when you're injured. You know, if you stop worrying so much about whether you've got a stress fracture when you've been diagnosed that it's not a stress fracture, then you can actually reduce that pain and, and potentially recover. That could be what's holding you back. So there's a lot of parallels there for runners who are into uh, who are injured as well and trying to recover properly. And yeah, for me, for me with injuries, it's always it's never the pain that stops me from running. It's the fear that the pain is an indication that it's going to get worse. Uh, yeah. So that's why sometimes a diagnosis, even if it's a false one, is is such a relief. It's like, oh, okay, so it's okay. It's okay if it hurts like that. In that case, I don't care. But it's, yeah. it's but I'll limp through it if it's like, oh, this could be a sign that I'm going to be, <laughs> uh, it's going to be getting something that becomes chronic and and that is going to torpedo my whole season. Then it's like, oh God, I can't, I can't run on this. So it's, yeah. it's, it, you really feel the, the, the effect of the perceptions and your, your, the way you're framing those feelings. Definitely. Listen, we got a, we got to have a mention for, I'm so happy that you're coming uh, to London after, I think you mentioned like, well, quite a few years of not coming to England. Um, and that's happening with Mr. Tom Goom, isn't it? Running physio himself. Um, that's going to be in April. The, let's bring this up. Let's see if I've got the date here actually correct. Let's put that on here. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Tom Goom is putting together a fantastic uh, running rehab from pain to performance, a new one-day conference, um, which is um, – oh, geez, I haven't got the date here. Do you know the date? I think it's April 24th. Whatever day the London Marathon is, it's the Friday. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's a good way of remembering it. And it's going to be your good self there speaking, as well as um, Ian Griffiths, who we've obviously had on the show, was at the Run Check Live conference, and Chris Napier. Um, and Claire Minchel as well. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be a fantastic conference um, with all four of you and Tom, of course, speaking as well. Um, and uh, if people want details of that, then go to uh, Tom's um, web page. Um, all details are on there. Um, and, uh, yeah, tickets are on sale now. Um, it's going to be a cracking day and a chance to not just Alex, but obviously a chance to definitely meet and see Alex Hutchinson in person talking. About. What are you talking on for that, by the way? I have read it, but I can't think of. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. I, I'm still I'm still working out exactly because because I, I don't want to just give my sort of standard talk about the book. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the things that you're talking about, the, the way that are in in the context of rehab a little bit and, and, and injury and the perception of pain, uh, how the mind and body interact and how that uh can others yeah how how it's relevant to to injury and rehab as well as to performance i'm still trying to i'm still kind of bouncing around some ideas of, of exactly what i want to get into because i think it's a, it's a really neat lineup with people with different backgrounds different mm -hmm. expertises um and I, and so i want to make sure that i'm i'm uh giving uh sort of continuing the train of thought from the the previous four speakers as opposed to just sort of uh you're running through the 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 ropes of of my usual talk well it's going to be a cracking day i'm looking forward to hopefully kid arrangements put in place of coming up as well myself <laughs> i can't guarantee yeah, anything yeah yeah no, I um claire minch was just saying as well looking forward to meeting you alex awesome program tom goom yeah hats off to tom goom yeah. and i like to think in some way that the run chat live conference in november actually spawned this a little bit I, I did, yeah no <laughs> definitely all 
Um, uh, I've got to get, yeah, Tom, Tom would be lovely as well. I did try and get Tom for the Uncheck Live, but he's got a little kid as well, and it's tricky, isn't it? You on the children front yourself? I don't know. It's a bit of a personal question, but three year olds, three year old, and uh, just turned six. And uh, yeah, the London, the London conference actually. My my wife has a conference the week before and the week after, so I would have loved to spend a week, you know, catching up with old friends and traveling around London. But it's like I'm already. Um, oh man the, when, the day i leave my, my my wife will still be gone so my parents will have to yeah anyway not to go into the details right. but it's yeah. the child care thing is a, is a challenge when Tricky, you want to uh, yeah, bounce yeah. around the world but hey we're just happy that we're going to have you for a whole day in london which will be fantastic <laughs> and i encourage people to snap those tickets up now um that's not long away actually now what else have you got planned between now and then anything coming up in particular no uh you know i've got a few a few uh uh talks here and there and i've got a few vacations uh, going to visit my in-laws in arizona get some warm weather from the toronto heat but or toronto cold rather but uh other than that just sitting at my desk reading studies and trying to figure out what the heck they uh, they're talking about <laughs> brilliant um and in terms of people contacting you um it used to be sweatsance.com didn't it but now that's changed yeah. Oh, I may no, I may have let that, that go. Uh, AlexHutchinson.net is my website, but oh, right, Twitter, okay. Twitter's probably the best place to reach to sort of figure out what I've got going on, and also to reach out to me um, via direct message or via just a, a tweet. Um, I find that the truth is my inbox is so uh, brutally out of control that, that uh, you're you're better you're much more likely to get a, a quick reply on Twitter than anywhere else. Yeah, I think you're most active on Twitter. You're very active on Twitter. I don't know whether it's just you've increased in the time that I've been kind of focusing very much on what you're saying, but um, you must be one of these people with your hand glued to your phone a lot of the time. Uh, I I generally don't do it on my phone or do it on my computer, but it is a probably the it's coin it's 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 proportional to my decrease in productivity that i'm <laughs> yeah same as it all, it's, isn't it's, it? it's a it's a bad habit but it's also a fascinating place and a great place to interact with oh definitely sure. yeah no i'm not criticizing it at all because the amount of people who yeah. can learn off the things which you put out there and discuss and come back to is amazing it's it's one of the good uses of internet really definitely it comes to cbd you can learn more from following you for a week on twitter than any course i think in the uk at the moment so. <laughs> I mean, and it's free so definitely okay well look i'm sorry i've taken up more time than i promised but alex thank you so much i can't wait to listen back to this um, and i really encourage people to go out and uh, buy the book or on audible um the audible's worth it just to hear how many times he pronounces kipchoge in <laughs> I oh man that, that's fun that's lessons good. learned for next time that's okay it's all right yeah um so yeah thank you so much um and uh yeah hopefully we'll catch up in uh, london um in april for tom goom's running conference thanks a lot man it's been a it's been a pleasure i appreciate the conversation no worries. I'm going to let you go now to the lobby and then I'll come back and say thank you in person. Um, so, yeah, thanks very much, Alex Hutchinson. Wow, great. Oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, what a fantastic hour. I hope you guys, um, hope, thank you for joining us live. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, and people who listen to the uh, replay on the podcast, um, I do encourage you to go to YouTube or my website, runchatlive.com, to have a look at the video. One, because you see the fantastic Alex talking in person. It's just a little bit better, isn't it, with that visual as well. Um, but also there's a few pictures up there um, of the people we talked about and a wonderful picture of uh, Alex in his um, kind of Japanese kind of robe thing after doing his mental brain stimulation kind of bike ride or whatever. So, yeah, there's definitely some visuals worth checking out. Um, and like I say, look out for um, Tom's uh, conference coming up in April in London. Hopefully we will see you there. Uh, but that's about it now. That was episode 39 of Run Chat Live. 
um another guest next month you'll have to watch me on social media before i'll announce that probably in a week's time or so um thanks to james morgan for coming in and and uh listening james um barefoot physio in exeter if i've got that right it's very right, well worth watching um on uh various social media probably facebook more than anything uh thanks to nick knight as well for coming in um a great the great podiatrist nick knight's got some great stuff out there as well claire minchell thank you for joining us as well he's going to be speaking in london um and to everyone who came in and joined us tonight it's fantastic to see so many people actually joining us live but we must go now and i'm going to go and say thanks to alex in person so see you next month guest will be um announced soon thank you very much you're listening to run chat live podcast putting the evidence back into running injury and performance